You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 85. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a lot of other stuff. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by airbreak.io. When your website experiences an error, Airbrake alerts you in real time and gives you all the details you need to fix the bug fast. And while Airbrake is great for monitoring web apps, it's not just for it. I recently just hooked up the Airbrake monitoring to a batch processing job that I use for QIT. And it, that process looks at like a hundred or so uh, podcast feed and feeds and it aggregates them. And so um, what I'm doing is I'm sending custom data along with each time I, I attempt to parse a feed. And so when one of those feeds fails, so like if the website's down or somebody has a, a malformed feed, I know exactly which one had the problem. And I can easily see what the error message was and how often it happened and when things went wrong. And then I can go yell at the podcast. Right now, Coding Blocks listeners can try Airbrake free for 30 days, plus get 50% off the first three months on the startup plan. To get started, visit airbrake.io slash codingblocks. That's airbrake.io slash codingblocks. So today we're talking about a couple of dynamic algorithms that represent a certain class of problems that are really important and uh, often overlooked in uh, computer science. But first, we're going to start off with a little bit of news here. So Outlaw, you want to tell us about those iTunes reviews? Yep. So uh, not really sure if this is supposed to be Friedelman or Fried Elman. So either way, I hope that that works. Uh, just an employee, Orbiter, Monkey, Road Rage, Bud Lee, Ahmed, an app, Nian, blah, 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 Nian, Jesus, <laughs> Anonymous, Jones's dad, and Matt, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Cut wiki. There you go. <laughs> yes. Yep. And over on sister, we got Trey, Troy, and Abe D in the modem. Uh, which I hope you get out of there. <laughs> uh, and uh, Rodolfo. So thank you very much. We really appreciate those reviews as always. Uh, even if we put you your name, we're really we're grateful and we read all of those. So thank you very much. Even though like, we, me especially, often uh, ruin the names, and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And um, just one quick tidbit here. Uh, I'm going to be heading out to uh, St. Pete, Florida. So if you're in the uh, area, um, August 7th, I'm going to be out there. So come up and uh, say hello, kick me in the shin or something. That's uh, going to be awesome. I love that. We got We need to get Joe like a t-shirt, a coding box t-shirt on the front, but on the back it says kick me. Yes. In yep. the shin. In the shin. <laughs> Specifically in the shin. Uh <clears throat> All right, so today we have got, as we mentioned, this topic, and one of the keywords in the intro there was dynamic programming. So somebody want to fill us in on what dynamic programming actually is? Yeah, sure. Um, don't want to go too deep because the uh, the definition is pretty specific, and you know we don't do very good with very specific things if you listen to the show for very long. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of at a high level. Uh, it's an optimization method for algorithms developed in the 1950s by, drumroll, Richard Bellman, which we're going to be saying this name uh, a lot coming up as we're going to be talking about the Bellman Forward algorithm. And the idea there is that you simplify a problem 
by breaking it down into subproblems, and then you iterate over the subproblems, and you kind of uh, gather up those subsolutions and take the best result. And it works really nice with memoization, which is basically the act of storing calculations so you don't have to redo them. So it's basically just a certain way of kind of solving certain types of programs, problems that come up pretty often. And I mean, this kind of stuff doesn't really come up too often in the day job, but uh, I wish it would because it's kind of fun. Well, yeah. maybe if you worked at uh, maybe these problems, well, not the dynamic program, but just like the other program uh, algorithms we're going to be talking about. I was thinking like depending on where you work, they might come up, right? Yeah, definitely. The type of work that you do for sure. So yeah. <clears throat> one of the one of the key parts of both of these algorithms we're going to discuss tonight are called weighted directed graphs and we'll have a link in the show notes to Wikipedia that will you know you can actually go look at some pictures and see these things but we're going to try and describe this in in maybe a kind of fun way so in a weighted directed graph I'm going to try and and break down these pieces for you so you and have to mention that dynamic Problems aren't just for graphs. It's just that just so happens that the only two problems we're going to be talking about tonight deal with directed graphs, but you can do all sorts of other stuff with it. Definitely. All right. So in a weighted directed graph, you have a starting point, also called as a vertex or a node, and a number of other points, also known as vertices, that are all connected with directional arrows. That's where the directed part of this graph comes from. And the fact that they're connected is what makes this a graph in the first place. So if you think of like a bunch of little circles with arrows going back and forth between them, that is essentially a directed graph. Now, the directional arrows between the vertices can be one way or two way, right? Like you could either have, you know, going from node A to node B or from node B to node A or both. You could have a, uh, an arrow going both ways. Um, additionally, from any vertex, there can be, um, they they can point to other vertices as well, right? So you're not just having to point to the node next to you. You could go to other nodes in the graph, basically anywhere you want. And to pile on here, usually those arrows have a number associated with them, and that is the weight. And that's where this weight in the weighted directed graph comes from, as that weight could represent anything from time to distance to whatever your use case may be. So that is the definition of a weighted directed graph. And now those weights don't have to be symmetric, right? So one direction can be one number and the coming the reverse way can be something totally different. Yep, yep. And we'll get into a little example of that here in a second. And not only can they be different, they can also be negative in some in some um, uses and positive in others, right? So, and we'll talk about the algorithms and what they support in, in that regard here in a minute. So to kind of try and paint a picture of this, I thought that, you know, maybe having like a little story as opposed to trying to use letters and numbers, because I think we lost some people in the last episode. Sorry about that. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry what? about that. No way. It totally made sense. <clears throat> right. One, two, three, a six, nine. Uh, so Think about this. Think of a neighborhood. So we're, we're going to have this neighborhood and me, Joe, and Michael are going to live in this neighborhood. But in this neighborhood, we don't have great roads, right? Like there's some really awesome roads and there's some things that really suck. And so we've got some really hilly terrain, some forests and all that kind of thing, right? So we're going to make the source house my house. So Alan's house is going to be the source house. And I can get to Mike's and Joe's house 
So I'll have lines pointing out from me to their houses, right? Arrows going that way, but they can't get to me. So I can, I can go slide down the hill to Mike's house, but it's a very muddy hill. So he can't get back up to mine. Right. And, and there's some sort of other crazy obstacle in the way of Joe's house, but between their houses, <laughs> it's uphill both ways. Uh, that's right. <laughs> the, the, through the snow. Um, but both Mike and Joe can get to and from each other's house. All right. Now here's the interesting thing, right? We could say it may be a way to paint this so that it would make sense for people. Like, why would the, the arrow going from Mike's house to Joe's house not be the same value going back, right? Let's say that, that Mike lives up on a huge hill, right? And so for him to get down to Joe's house takes 10 minutes, but for Joe to get up to Mike's house takes 20, right? Like, the, think of any use case that you could possibly come up with, but, but it's that type of thing. So really now what you've got is I can go to either one of their houses and they can go in between their houses. But now really where these algorithms come into play is what is the shortest distance to get to their houses or what's the shortest amount of time? I, I guess in this case, I should say, would it take for me to get to Mike's house and the shortest amount of time it would take for me to get to Joe's house? And assuming this, that time is the weight. Assuming in this yes. scenario. Yes. Assuming that the weight on the graph is time. Yep. So Alan wants to know on podcast recording night, what's the latest he could leave based on what house he's going to in order to get there exactly 45 minutes late. That's right. <laughs> is that fashionably late nowadays? Uh, <laughs> so that's just normal. Yeah. That's Florida time. All right. So, so now this is where the two algorithms we're going to discuss come into play. So the first one we're going to go over is Bellman Ford. And who wants to kick us off with that one? Um, either way. Uh, I guess uh, I started talking. <laughs> so uh, getting a little meta there. Sorry about that. So the Bellman Ford uh, algorithm is an algorithm devised by two people. Um, one was Bellman, which we mentioned earlier, which kind of uh, came up with this whole notion of dynamic programming. But the idea is that it uses a mathematical approach called a relaxation method, which sounds kind of funny. But all it really means is that we keep looking for better solutions. And wherever we see a solution that's better than the one that we've already got, we can replace it. So in our kind of example there, the neighborhood, like if we kind of are starting from blank slate, we, we would say that um, since we know nothing, it takes infinite amount of time to get from Alan's house to Michael's house and from Alan's house to Joe's house. But as we go along and figure those routes out, we're going to update that. And the first time we see any route, we're going to say, oh, you know what? Uh, 12 minutes is better than infinite. So we're going to update uh, basically a table of values here. And we're going to call that, it's basically called relaxation. Which doesn't sound very relaxing to me. <laughs> huh, I don't know. But um, I guess uh, you want me to go ahead and describe the algorithm? Or Mike, you want to jump in? Either one of you? I, it doesn't matter. Yeah, sure. Right. So we'll start, at the, we'll start at the home note. So like Alan said, we will start at his house uh, and try to go from there and get the weights for each of the connected nodes and keep track of those. So... We started as an unknown, so the weights from Alan's house to my house or to Joe's house were an infinite, but then we realized that there is there is a weight. So <clears throat> let's say that it was uh, like 20 minutes to get to my house and 30 minutes to get to Joe's house. You know, If Alan went directly to my house, it's 20 minutes. If Alan went directly to Joe's house, it's 30 minutes. 
You and might it, think that would be the most efficient route, but uh, there's you know that's not necessarily the case. Like maybe you can take the lazy river winding down, whatever. Find some other way, get stopped through Will's house or something else, and find some better way. But we just don't know that yet because we haven't traversed through all the potential nodes yet. Yep. So we'll go through uh, to the next node on the list and get the weights for that. So in that case, let's say we go to my house and my house only connects to one other house and that's Joe's. And it's five minutes to get from my house to Joe's house. So we now know that the cost from my house to Joe's house is five. But we, when we previously tracked the cost from Alan's house to Joe's house, we said that was 30 minutes. However, uh, taking the winding river approach that Joe mentioned, if we go through my house instead, it's 20 minutes to get from Alan's house to my house and five minutes from my house to Joe's. So therefore, it's 25 minutes to, for Alan to go through my house to get to Joe's. Yep. And, and the key part here is basically if you, if you visualize this thing, you've got a table with all the ends, with all the nodes in it, right? And then the shortest weight between those. So you're going to have Alan as a node and mine's going to be zero because it takes me no time to get from my house to my house. And then, and then Michael's would be a node and it started at infinity. Then it went to 20. Um, and, and it's going to stay at 20. And then Joe's started at 30 because it was from my house. But now because we can go through Mike's house, we can get there in 25. And so you just constantly update this table as you go around these nodes, recalculating these values, until you get down to the shortest possible route from the source node. And that's the important part, right? Every measurement is the shortest from the beginning node to get to all the other nodes. And this is where that relaxation comes in. Cause we started with the cost to get to Joe's house, <clears throat> Joe's house, that cost went from through three different values. It started at an infinite, uh, cause it was a complete unknown. Then we relaxed that to 30 minutes and then after going through my house, we realized we could relax it again to 25 minutes. Yep. And, and in a nutshell, that's it, right? It, we, we did a very small set of nodes here so that, so that we could describe it, and not confuse everybody. But essentially the, the Bellman Ford algorithm is, is you keep going around the list of nodes until you've basically gotten to the lowest one. Like if nothing changes, on on any particular pass, then you know you're pretty much you're done at that point, right? I see. I see you going. So I don't know. If you can say that like uh, some some particular um, versions of the algorithm may kind of bug out early if it sees that it's things is kind of stabilized. But um, the actual trick here is that kind of at the top level, we know that there can be there's going to be a maximum number of uh, edges or connections between the nodes of the number of nodes minus one, because if you have two nodes, there's only one line in between. And so it kind of exploits that connection. And so what we do is actually um, kind of another way to say this algorithm is we start at a high level. We say from I equals zero to the node count minus one, let's just do this thing. So if we got five nodes, we're going to loop four times. And then we're going to say in each of those sub iterations, we're going to look at each node and we're going to compare its neighbors and say, hey, am I a better route to get from the starting point to me than me to my neighbor? Is that faster than the time I've got recorded in this table? If it is, then I'm going to record it. And that's where that kind of dynamic problem comes in because we're saying like each node is kind of doing this solve this, this smaller problem where it says like, is my time to my neighbor plus the start node's time to me, if we add that up together, is that less than what I've got stored? If so... 
I'm going to memoize that result. I'm going to store it in the table and kind of forget about the numbers that made it up. I'm just going to stick in that final number there. And then we do that cycle enough times. By the way, that's a very important piece of this that I think some people might be like, well, wait a second. How do I get there? Right. This algorithm does not store the routes to get there. This algorithm is all about finding the shortest, you know, the smallest weight to get from the starting point to that node. So even though you might have had to go on through Mike's house and Will's house and, you know, John's house to get to Joe's house, that doesn't matter. The only thing that this algorithm cares about is the end result of what that value is at Joe's house. Yeah. Now, if you really want that route, you can keep track of it and stuff. It's just going to get the, the algorithm is going to get a little bit hairier. But for the, the main point of this algorithm is that you're going to end up with a table that has all the most efficient times from the start node to all other nodes. And it's kind of counterintuitive to think that you're going to keep recursing over these same nodes over and over and over again. But that's kind of the trick there is because we're subdividing the problem. We need to loop over those nodes and do each node trying from basically each one to all of its neighbors like that many times. So you're going to hit that A node, that Allen node. You know, if we've got three three uh, places in our neighborhood, we're going to hit that thing twice. Yeah. If you have 10 nodes, then you're going to loop through all of 10 nodes nine times. If you have yep. 20 nodes, you're going to loop through all 20 nodes 19 times. So it's the number of nodes minus that. So it, it's a it's a fairly um, expensive algorithm in order to get that. Yep, for sure. So it's it's... Uh, outer loop through the node count. So it's been literally a for loop between two numbers. The inside there, you're going to hit every single node. And then inside of that, you're going to look at each node's neighbors. Yeah. So we're kind of hinting around the complexity, but let's dig into it though. So, um, real quick, I want to say that in the last episode, we were talking about like, you know, the, um, as it related to you know, previous algorithms around sorting and whatnot, Things like, uh, you know, uh, how do we say it? Like absolute V and absolute E and things like that. And it was pointed out like, oh, hey, no, we're just dumb. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, it was pointed out. uh, I don't know how I'm going to mess this name up. Zoily left us a comment on that episode and said, no, 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 uh, you're just being stupid. That represents the set. So it's the set of vertices and the set of uh, edges, not the um, absolute values for him. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's been a while since I've had a math class, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, with that, now we can read these, right. And we can say that the worst case, the time complexity for this Bellman forward algorithm, um, is going to be the, uh, set of vertices times the, the set of edges. So the number of vertices times the number of edges is your worst case, Time complexity. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier. The edges are the arrows, the the lines connecting the nodes. So the number of total nodes you have times the number of lines that you have. Yeah. Or in our house thing, it would be like the roads yep. connecting to the houses. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. This is the first algorithm that I think that we've talked about that um, split the big O up this way. Like maybe we'll eventually we'll do an episode on big O. We're kind of diving into this a little bit more. I just think it's kind of interesting that it, it actually breaks the um, the input space up into like the vertices and edges like normally we like uh, for the sorting albums we just talked about the size of the array and we didn't really talk or didn't really look at it any other way so i just thought it was kind of interesting to take that input and actually kind of specify it that way mathematically yeah well i mean but it makes sense though right because you have two inputs coming in 
right? And and they're a factor of each other. So, you know, it matters. So here, the best case, you know, as Joe mentioned, there are alternative versions of this algorithm. So the best case, the time complexity is going to be just the number of edges. That's if right? there's one arrow basically in between each each node, right? Yeah. Well, I'm also imagining like between best case and worst case, like as Joe mentioned about the, uh, you know, some versions of this, some implementations of the algorithm might uh, buck out early. Right. Right. So, you know, there's this, there's this range, right? Your, your worst case is the set of vertices times the set of edges. And your best case is just the set of edges. Yeah. I think that, that the best case there doesn't deal with the, like the input. It's just a matter of how the, it's actually implemented. So like what, whether you pass like something with a lot of edges or a few edges to it, it should still be the number of edges for this particular implementation. Yeah. And I didn't look at um, like the different implementations for this one. I mainly looked at Dijkstra, but um, I know that like things got pretty weird. Like there were dash structures that I've never heard of, like a Fibonacci tree. Like that was a new one for me. Mm. Sounds cool though. I didn't look at it. Yep. And so this works works well for simple graphs, but it's not the most efficient algorithm for uh, complex or dense graphs because uh, you know as that number of vertices and number of edges kind of grow in the in the normal versions of the algorithms, then. Uh, just kind of performs not so well, but we didn't really give an example of negative cycles. And and the well, example of time doesn't really make sense to think like if I go, you know, unless I cross the time zone. But wait, did we did we talk about the space complexity yet? Uh, I think I skipped it. No, nah, we didn't. We, okay, so just to come circle back to that before we get to the negative cycles, the worst case for the space complexity for this is going to be the number of vertices. So I found that you know kind of curious. Like they're they were the opposites, right? Best case, the time complexity is the number of edges, but worst case, the the space complexity is the number of vertices. So this goes back to that memoization table that Joe was talking about, right? Like you're keeping track of that. So your worst case space complexity is the size of that table, which is going to be one entry per uh, vertice. Yep. Worst case, that's Vertex. really good. Yeah. So well, that seems to be the best case also, right? Like there's really no change because you have to keep track of it to all of them. So it's, that's your best worst. That's your, your standard case. It's your case. Yeah. It, but it is. yeah. How would you say? And your, your case is your, your case is now, so, yes. O sub number of vertices. Now there was, there was a statement here too, though. There was like, if, if each of your, each vertex has at least one going edge, then you can approximate the complexity to just be O of N squared. Yeah, um, I guess I'm okay with that. We've got that kind of the double for loop sitting there up on uh, on the top. And then if you say the inners is just how many neighbors it has. So like if your graph doesn't have a lot of neighbors and like, eh, we don't want to deal with getting things complicated. We just want to define this in terms of N, then uh, N squared is pretty good. Yeah. Yep. All right, so now on to uh, negative cycles, which doesn't really work too well with the time example unless you think about like going to someone's, we go to Will's house uh, for the Super Bowl or whatever it's called. Uh, Good N-A-B. Lord. Well, no, no, we <laughs> can still Super use this. Ball, you said? No, no. <laughs> That's what he said. Oh, yeah. It's well, the, the baseball <laughs> thing, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Major League Super Bowl. Oh, so, no. <laughs> no, it could still work because Will has a time machine. Uh, uh, yes. So, so he could have a negative cost. It could be a, it could, it could still be a positive cost from Alan's house to Will's co- house, but a negative cost from Will's house to my house. Okay. 
And Bellman Ford deals with that. It's okay with that. Uh, the way it kind of adds things up. Like if you've got a negative edge in there, you can end up, um, you can end up, it's just going to factor in. It's just going to work. What you can't have though is a negative cycle, which is, uh, like, I, I'm not really sure how to define it, but basically you, you can just keep going around in a loop. Yeah. Forever. If you basically had a triangle of nodes that each had arrows pointing to each other that had negative values, you could just continually go around and subtract values. And so you're always going to be approaching negative infinity at that point. Basically the point is, is like your, your ultimate cost needs to be greater than zero as you, as you direct, as you define the cost from any node to any other node, it it should be greater than zero. And you get a negative cycle once you start going less than zero, because with Bellman Ford, as you iterate back around that, uh, those nodes again, you'll hit that negative cycle again and you'll just keep reducing it, which is what Alan was talking about, about you'll, you're just working towards negative infinity. Yeah. And so that's the negative cycle, right? If you get into a loop to where you can just keep reducing the cost, then you'll never be able to solve it. Right. But this is, this is, you know, both a pro and a con for the Bellman Ford algorithm, you know, because on the one hand, because the existence of this negative cycle exists, uh, you can find it, right? You can detect it and just, you know, abort early. So if you're looking for that, then once you find that there's a negative cycle, you can report it and you're done, right? So there's your, your pro. But the, it's a con though, because the existence of this negative cycle means that that particular graph, you are unable to find the correct answers for like what the shortest paths are using this algorithm. Yep. But it is worth pointing out that the Bellman Ford does handle negative edges, which is something that we'll find out about Dijkstra in a minute that it doesn't handle. So I, I kind of don't care though. <laughs> so uh, in all the examples I saw, it was basically uh, dealing with numbers from one ten. So what I figured is you could just add a hundred, and hey. as long as that negative number wasn't more than a hundred, then you're always positive. So uh, no biggie. Uh, well, what if it costs you money? What if, what if the weight, what if you get paid? What if Alan were to get paid to go from my, from his house to my house, right? Like he would make money to go in that direction. But for him to then go from my house to your house, it would cost him money, right? So depending on like what your weight represents, you might care to have a negative number. It might mean something to you. Right. right. Like we want to know if like we're, we're going to run this business into the ground like right. on the first destination, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we're there. <laughs> right. Hey, do you expect to see his algorithm with a N plus 100 in there starting off? <laughs> like, if there's any negative values. Like, is I just add 100 to all the node values and I call Dijkstra's. I've got it. <laughs> add 100. <laughs> just multiply everything by something until it's like greater than zero. That's right. Exactly. Oh. It'll be fine. Awesome. It's a heuristic. So with that, as we do every time, thank you all who have left us reviews. We read them all. We very much appreciate them. If you haven't and you've thought about it many times while you're driving, you know, just a reminder, if, if we make it easy for you, if you want to head to www.codingblocks.net slash review, and we have links there to iTunes, Stitcher, um, some other places. So you know, if you would like to give back to us and, and put a smile on our faces, please do go up there and leave us a review. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, and you know what? We ought, we've said, we ask about leaving a review, but you know, another way that would really be beneficial, tell a friend. 
Oh, totally. I don't know that we ask for that that much, but yeah. that would be amazing. Tell a friend, spread the word. And you got that friend that needs the show, right? It's like, yeah, yeah I, man, I, <laughs> I saw that pull request. Here's this podcast. That's right. What I what what my take on that is. You're going to make your life better as a co-programmer <laughs> if you get them listening, hopefully. Uh. Yeah, see, on that way to graph, the first one's free. <laughs> That's right. That's so. <laughs> like, y'all thought we were, talk- we were talking about time. Like, no, we're talking about money. <laughs> we're starting a little business here. <laughs> Making it rain. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, let's head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says, all right, so last episode we asked, what is your most productive season? And your choices were spring, it's the best way to avoid the pollen. Or summer, let me stay behind my keyboard in the nice air-conditioned room. Fall, the sky or leaves are falling, safer to stay inside. Or winter, Oh, scares me. I'm not going out there. Or seasons. We don't need seasons here. All right. So Joe cheated. I'm letting Alan go first. All right. So <laughs> so because he cheated, I, I, I'm going to have to figure this out. First off, the pollen thing is definitely a Georgia thing. So what? I'm, I'm going to say that nobody chooses that. No, there's pollen elsewhere. <laughs> um, Honestly, I think it's the winter one. Um, uh, just because it's the Olaf, yeah, it's Olaf is Olaf scares everybody. And unless you have a snowboard, you're not going out there. Right. And, and the kids are all in school and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to say this cause summer's too many distractions. Let's go with, with winter and I'm going to go 37%. 37. All right. And I saw a screen, but it's not my fault. It was a screen share. <laughs> oh, I, I got to teach you a lesson here. It ain't my fault. Screen share on the wrong <laughs> monitor or not realizing that you're still screen sharing when you uh, flip over to something. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> unfortunately, I don't really remember what it was. So I'm just going to say seasons. <laughs> uh, we don't, we don't seasons here. And uh, I'm going to go with a good old 26%. 26. So winter for 37% or. We don't have seasons for 26%. I want to live there. All right. Well, by prizes right rules, you both lose. Oh, really? But (laughs) but we do have a winner who picked the number one choice. It's me. And it's Alan. (laughs) Oh, man. Golly. People don't like Olaf. He's scary. Yeah, but what was the percentage? It can't have been that much lower. 34. Oh, man. You you didn't miss it by much. You were both in the neighborhood. I mean, like Joe was at uh, Seasons was the second, and that was twenty three percent. Oh man, these people! Which I want to know where those people live. Right, San Francisco to yeah, San Francisco to San Diego. They're all right there in that bunch. It's got to be. I mean, I don't leave the house, so it doesn't matter if there's seasons or not, really. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you got to go outside and get a taco every now and then. (laughs) That's true. Uh, I'm guessing down where Joe lives, there is one season, and it's just hot. <laughs> yeah, it's just hot, like flip flop, melting hot. Our Taco Bell delivers though, so Taco Bell delivers. Are you, yeah. you serious? Yeah. Flip flop, melting hot. George, get with the program, dude. Taco Bell delivers. Come on, man. I know, man. Where do you think I got this from? <laughs> 
That one from vegetables. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, I've got to imagine it's like an Uber Eats delivery service that does it. I don't know. I don't care, man. Like you bring me tacos. You, you knock on my door <laughs> with tacos. I'm giving you some money. Uh, All right. Well, let let's continue this theme. Uh, so, since last episode was the most productive season, let's find out what your most productive time of day is. So, your choices are morning. Got to get my work done before the rest of the office gets in, or midday. Let everyone else go to lunch. I'm getting this commit merged. Or evening, I'll let the traffic die down while I close one more ticket. Or night, now that all of the meetings are over, I can finally start my day. I think I know what the answers to these will be. Nah, don't, no, don't. I'm not going to lead them. Not going to lead them. This episode is sponsored by Airbrake.io. When your website experiences an error, Airbrake alerts you in real time and gives you all the details you need to fix the bug fast. And speaking of fast, it's really nice to get those real-time notifications. And I mentioned that batch process earlier. And because of how I built that process, it spits out a ton of output to screen, which means that unless you're sitting there watching it or you're working out your scroll finger, scrolling up, up, up to see if there's any problems, then it's really easy to miss things. And Airbrake catches that stuff and aggregates it and notifies you immediately. So then I can go and bug those podcasts about uh, their busted feeds. Right now, <laughs> right now, Coding Blocks listeners can try Airbrake free for 30 days, plus get 50% off the first three months of the on the startup plan. To get started, visit airbrake.io slash coding blocks. That's airbrake.io slash coding blocks. Okay, so now that we've got Bellman Ford's algorithm behind us, let's talk about Dijkstra's algorithm. Starting with, who is Dijkstra? Yeah, and uh, he's a famous programmer, mathematician. Uh, he's the go-to harmful guy that's kind of made some waves. Uh, wrote a bunch of books. And we talked about it um, not too long ago when we talked about structured programming, which is kind of a way of programming using a functionals and compositional deconstruction, kind of like a precursor to uh, OO. And so a uh, pretty famous person. And he invented this algorithm that's so famous and so awesome that it bears his name, even though it's not easy to, to spell for, at least for us Americans. <laughs> You know what's funny about this algorithm before we get into it? This is naturally how my mind worked. This particular algorithm, like the Bellman Ford one, like it took me a minute to wrap my head back <laughs> around it. This one is like, this is like how my brain was like, oh, this is how you would totally do this, right? So to me, the main difference between these two algorithms is that uh, this one is greedy. <laughs> so it's funny that you say that. Well, dog on it. <laughs> I take it all basically, back. <laughs> which is that has a, a negative connotation of course but uh, like basically it makes uh like locally optimistic i think they call it um changes so basically uh well i, <laughs> I guess i'm kind of jumping ahead here but it's really similar to the first one where you start out with this table you initialize it and say alan to get to alan is zero and the rest is infinite we don't know we loop through and figure out uh, all of alan's uh connections and we update the table so so far we're exactly the same as Bellman Ford. Now the difference is instead of having that outer loop that says we're going to loop over this thing like four or five or 20 times, we say, tell you what, make, find out which of the nodes that you're connected to that we haven't looked at yet. So like a house that we haven't visited yet, that is the shortest distance to you right now. 
go there and check out their neighbors. Yep. So rather than kind of like looking at every node, kind of like with not paying any attention to how far away it is, it's like, just go ahead and look at the shortest one. And so it makes this locally optimal choice here. And that's the big difference. And uh, because of that, it's able to kind of save some time. And so this ends up performing better, but the downside is it doesn't do so well. With those, it doesn't do well with those negatives at all. It's, it's flat out not going to work. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not that it doesn't do well. It won't, it won't do them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but to kind of like uh, say that a slightly different way, like we basically start with an unvisited node with the lowest weight. So that first iteration, you know, using the house of the neighborhood example, we've got Alan can connect to Alan. It's the only node we know, we know about because that's the one that we're defining all the other um, relations to. So we start there because it's zero. We look at your neighbors and we log the time. If it's less than first run is going to be infinity, so we're going to log both those neighbors. Then we take a look at whatever neighbor is the closest and figure out that same thing. And we repeat that process by, again, looking at the next closest neighbor that we haven't already visited, and we do it again. And so this one, you're only going to visit those nodes one time. Yep. So an important thing to note here is, as we talked about in the last one, the memoization table that we had, where it was, you know, Alan, Joe, Michael, those those three those three nodes that show up in there. And then there was another column that was basically the distance or the time or whatever we wanted to call that the cost. This memoization table is going to have one additional column, which is going to be, have you visited this yet? Because you have to keep track of which nodes you've been to so that you don't go back to them, right? You can never backtrack. You can never touch that same node again. And so as you visit, like if I went to Mike's house first, then I'm going to mark that thing off, say, okay, I can't come back here, right? And then I'm going to go from his house to the next house. So it might be Joe's house. And if Joe's house is a shorter distance than Will's house, then we're going to go to Joe's house and we're going to mark that off. Right. And you keep traversing it like that, going around the nodes, just picking, Hey, what's the shortest distance, which one's shorter than the other one and, and keep going that route. Yep. So building forward, it, like it works, like it's no slouch, you know, no one can really give it a hard time. Works great with, with um, those negative weights, but Dykes is just really elegant. So I'm a fan of this algorithm. Now when I actually coded it, it looked a lot less elegant than it does on paper here. <laughs> especially with all my console.logs in there because JS for life. But uh, it's just a really nice uh, algorithm. And I think that it's, a lot of problems are really similar to it, especially in the, the, the dynamic range. So this is a good one to know. Yeah, I wanted to like just briefly touch on that. You, you hinted about the greedy algorithm, which is what Dijkstra's is. But I don't know that we like really maybe put a kind of formal definition on it. I know that we somewhat hinted on this like um, – episode or two back because I think we talked about the traveling salesman came up. Um, or the knapsack. I, yeah. Or change. I, I, yeah. I'm trying to remember what that, with the context of that episode, but it, it came up like a couple episodes back and um, we talked about like, if you try to create any kind of a, a map routing type of algorithm, right. Uh, where you're trying to get from say Georgia to California, right. Then, you're going to, you know, a greedy algorithm would take, hey, you know, I might not be able to determine the absolute shortest path all the way. That's, that's, that's the problem with the traveling salesman problem is I might not be able to, there's so many different routes that I could go for, between Georgia to California. But what I can do is I can just say, well, 
what's the quickest way to get from Georgia to say Alabama and then from Alabama to Mississippi, right? And you can just keep going that path. So you're only looking at like, what's my next best, uh, my next, you know, most af- beneficial step that I can take. And that's what it's, that's how it's being greedy. And in the case of the Dijkstra algorithm, you're looking at what's the lowest cost next vertice that I can go to. And that is, you know, my net, my next destination. As opposed to the Bellman Ford where it's not greedy because it's going to go through every single possible iteration to get to that final answer. And I think this is a really cool example because usually you, you hear about greedy algorithms in, in um, places where it's not, it's a, it's a hard problem. So it's not something you can really solve. And so we're usually dealing with approximations, but this just happens to be a case where we do something in a greedy way. And it just so happens to be the, the most efficient way of doing it. What's the, Again, what's, it works out mathematically. It's proven to be the, uh, the, the most optimum route. Any of you, either of you guys have like a, where you most often hear about greediness come up, come to mind? Fake news. Okay. I don't know. No, I mean, I think of the change problem. Like I, you got to make 78 cents in the least number of coins. My first thought is like, well, I don't know. I'm not going to do the math ahead of time, but I'm going to start throwing out the quarters until I can't anymore. And then we'll just go from there. Okay. That, that comes up in your day job a lot. No, I'm talking about day job. Oh, Either of you? No one Salary one negotiation? I don't know. I see Alan is like in deep thought over here. Uh, I got nothing. I, where, where I see even the word greedy come up at all in any kind of conversation is around regular expressions. Oh, uh, interesting. Really? Yeah. You never, you never seen that where like th- this particular uh, expression would be greedy. And if you wanted it to not be greedy, then you got to do blah, 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 blah. All right. Well, I, do, no, I don't write those. I, I go to Stack Overflow for those kind of regex. <laughs> uh, uh, that's what I'm doing wrong. Google. Yeah. I, you can't write regex like that. <laughs> that's crazy. Dude, right? I, like, I, I do like writing regex. Oof. Oh, man. Once you get into like backtracing or whatever they call it, like, uh-uh. It, it is a but, mind But that's where like, you know, regular expressions are another form of like greedy. They can be fast. Greedy uh, algorithms though. Yep. Hmm. And so there are times where you might not want a greedy regular expression. Hmm. Um, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, fine. I believe it. I don't know. I guess I need to bone up on my regex. Uh, so you're doing something I'm not. Apparently I'm doing it wrong because I'm not going to stack overflow. That's right. Yeah. Maybe I just slide those tickets your way. So, so you want to <laughs> hit us with the, uh, you want to hit us with the results on this, the complexity and and those various pieces? Not really. Uh, so, I mean, the results of the actual algorithm are exactly the same as Bellman Ford. You're going to get a table out that has um, all of the shortest distances or the shortest numbers to uh, all the, the other different nodes. The complexity gets weird because there's a bunch of pros and cons and there's a bunch of different ways to do it. You can use like adjacency lists or priority queues or you can uh, use a matrix or you can use a Fibonacci heap or um, or something else. And so there's a bunch of different ways. They each have their pros and cons. And um, so it's kind of hard to really give like one particular value for the speed here. But I don't know. Like, do you guys have a favorite? Well, it's still way faster than Bellman Ford, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, and so um, like the I think the most common one I've seen is the uh, using the adjacency list and priority queue together. So you got a big O of the vertex is plus at the edges. 
Which is and that's in parentheses, right? So you add up the vertices and the uh, the edges, and you multiply that by the log of the vertices. So you don't need to look at all of them. Way smaller than n squared. Yeah, because remember we could, um, yeah, we could approximate that other one to uh, O of n squared, and this one is a, uh, you know, we got those v's and e's in there, but you can kind of think of it as uh, uh, sub exponential. Oh, that's not the word for it. Basically, an n log n kind of thing. You know what's funny about that though? Typically in big O notation, don't you typically throw out the factors? So, so that could be simplified to O log of v. If I remember correctly, I may be wrong. No, I think I think Joe is more right. It would be like O V log V. Oh. But he said it as low log um O oh, of N log N. Add. I thought you right, threw because away. like you once constants. you once you added once you add V plus E, then it might as well be the same. Like it doesn't really make that much difference to it. Yeah, it kind of maps to input size. So it's like input size times the log of input size. But yeah, you can't just drop, you have to drop constants. So if you've got like something happening five times in a loop, it's like, ah, screw it, it's just a loop. Okay. I couldn't remember if it was factors. Okay. And it's all about how scales. But either, um, but but regardless though, any of these different implementations that you've talked about, whether you're combining a priority queue with an adjacency list or a matrix or using the Fibonacci heap, either of these are using, a, when you talk about their complexity, logarithms of the uh, vertices. And as we talked about before, anytime you talk about logs, then you're talking about like, you know, uh, like a magnitude of it. You're not talking about the entire inverse exponents. Yeah. Is yeah it's it sublinear. Is. It's it, like even better than linear scaling. Right. <laughs> that's so, not explaining it very so, well. Can I mean, you like, see the motions I'm doing with my arms right now? <laughs> yeah. That's what made it all click. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, because the, the point I was trying to make though is that, like before we were talking about like either for Bellman forward, you're either multipli- multiplying, which is when we got into the O of n squared, or you're just taking this the the set by itself, right? That was your best case. Yep. Whereas this, where the number of vertices go up, your actual complexity goes down, which is interesting. Yeah, you know, and I, I just realized we didn't mention the best example of why you would use an algorithm like this. So why do you need to know from a starting node to all other nodes? It's like, well, video games, obviously. So A star algorithms are heavily based on Dijkstra's algorithm. It's somewhere where we don't have negative weights because, you know, the bad guy needs to get to the good guy or the bad guy needs to get to the turret or the bad guy needs to get to, you know, run away or whatever. Um, and needs to figure out what, like, what it's able to get to. And uh, the A star is basically an adapted form of this where it kind of prune down, prunes down the tree to get even more um, optimized to run faster because that's the kind of thing that needs to run over and over and over again. Hmm. Awesome. So comparing the two algorithms, really, you get the same end result, assuming there's no negative edges, right? Yep. Uh, so you can compare the results between the two. Uh, Dijkstra is greedy, we said. Bowman Ford is not. Bellman uh, already said the negative, and I don't know. I guess we're uh, going to repeat. Just Bellman is built on the notion that there are less vertices than there are vertexes. So there are um, – is that is that right? Mm, no, this is just the number of iterations, right? Yeah, we basically don't need to iterate more than the number of ver- the number of nodes we have. I, those V words, so we don't have to iterate more than. Vert- so that's why we're saying like that. There's four houses in the neighborhood. We don't have to do more than three checks. Yep. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's about it for those two algorithms. And again, those algorithms are important because they're kind of exemplified dynamic programming and uh, they're used for a couple of different things. I I don't know. Do you guys see this kind of problem solve up? Have you ever Bellman forded something? Well, that's why I was thinking like before, like, no, short answer, no. But you know, depending on who you're working for or the type of jobs you're working for, you know, I mean, I've had friends that worked for companies where they were you know, writing mapping uh, software for truck delivery trucks within a company or whatnot. You know, if you're working for like in the Google Maps division, then you're probably going to care about, you know, routing type um, things. Or maybe if you're doing, you know, a link, you work for LinkedIn or a Facebook or something like that, and you're trying to do like, uh, you know, any kind of connected graphs within. But, oh, you know what, though? I just thought of an example where I'm wrong, though. We, we did need this. I would venture to say even if you have like a warehousing application where you have to, you know, try and figure out the best routes to get from one place to another and, and optimize flow throughout throughout like some sort of area, these types of things would come into play there. I've done a little bit with A-Star stuff, just messing around with video games. And there are a couple of cases where I can think of like dynamic problems that I've solved that are kind of similar where I basically kind of break the problem into various pieces and then kind of store that information, in a, like a, usually a database or something. And then later I kind of interacted with that. Um, the results of those calculations rather than calculating all that stuff on the fly, because I want to know how things kind of relate to each other. So I basically save kind of score. Um, so kind of similar, but I don't know. I am um, actually, so I program these guys just kind of like the, the sorting algorithms, just kind of try and get my head around the algorithms and, um, but like once you do one of them, the second one is almost like a straight up copy paste and just kind of tweak that last little bit there. Yeah. I did like Dijkstra's better though. Yeah. I, I just thought about something there like a, in a previous gig where we did need one of these algorithms, but didn't realize it until we had already gone, moved on. Right. Because like in any kind of, any kind of graph type of programming, right? You're allowing for, um, if we were to talk about a tree, right, like in our previous conversations about like breadth first and depth first, right, where, you know, there was like this kind of like, quote, parent-child hierarchy, right? But with graphs, you don't necessarily have that, right? You know, Alan, my house pointed to Joe's house, Joe's house pointed to my house, et cetera. So, you know, that was bi-directional. Uh, you know, you could have multiple houses pointing to multiple like quote parents or whatever in a graph, right? There's no, there's no kind of relationship there is where I'm going with that. Right. And, uh, you know, kind of, this was kind of like, uh, one of the takeaways from obviously we're, you know, we still have been going on with, uh, Rob Connery's the imposter's handbook here. And, you know, one of the points that he made in this, in the book though, was like knowing when you need one of these things. Right. And he, he talked about a story where, uh, yeah, there was actually it. It impacted his his job because he didn't realize that he needed to know something until it was like too late. He realized it well after the fact, after he already lost the job. But you know, by then it was way too late, and that was kind of what happened with us. Is that? Well, I mean, not that we lost our job because of, it, but uh, you know, we thought that we were looking at a tree problem, and so we started attacking the problem in that direction, right? And you know, imagine you've got like massive amounts of code, and then you realize oh my God, it's a graph, right? And like by then we were like, oh my God, how do we go back and redo this to make a graph problem? So changes everything. It is, it is important to, you know, to recognize it for what it is and to, to be able to apply the right algorithms. 
Now, um, like when it comes to graphs, like I had to make a decision. Like I haven't really thought about a graph or programmed a graph in a long time. But as soon as I went to do it, I was like, oh, you know what? I need first. I need to make like actual graph kind of object. And so there's a couple different ways to do it. I was kind of curious what you guys like. Like maybe one of you guys shut your ears, and the other one say like how you initially think about programming graph. I'm kind of curious to see if your like default uh, way you would build it is different than mine. I but I don't have one. You don't have. Oh, I mean, I don't know. What do you? Yeah, I guess not. Mine would have been basically like an array with the vertices mm-hmm. in one, and then probably. From that point, have I don't know if I do like two dimensional arrays to where I yeah. So that's that, like you're basically talking about a matrix. So you could say yeah. like if you've got like the rows and the columns or the different nodes, you can say like A talks to B by you know row and column, and then B talks to A could be different by going to right. You know, so right. you can capture all those relationships there. So that's funny that you said that because that's not the way I did it. Uh, what about you, Outlaw? Were you thinking kind of along those lines or? No, I really wasn't. I mean, I kind of liked where Alan was going with it, but then he threw me with that last part because I was thinking like, oh, yeah, okay. So if you had an object that had the, you know, the list of here's everything that I can point to. So you could do it multiple ways. You could either have like a a, a two-dimensional array where you have your vertices and the things that it points to, or you could literally just have a list of like key value pairs that point from this node to that node, this node to that node, right? So that's an adjacency list. Yeah, I mean, basically, you store all the connections like one big list. Yeah. And that's got some really nice advantages, too. What 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 route did you take? I basically treated it like a tree. So I kind of had like a, you know, a starting node and it had its neighbors and then each neighbor had neighbors. So it, it basically, I programmed it like as if it were a tree, uh, except that it could have cycles. So yeah, that's I what don't I was know. Gonna say. How do you handle the cycles at that point? Well, or or is each node have work. its own tree? Well, how do you have and and how do you have how do you handle it if it has multiple parents? That's fine. It like right. it doesn't if have a, a notion of parent. It only has a, a notion of neighbors. So it's like a tree, but it's not a tree. Okay, so basically, what he's saying is, if uh, if we use the house examples, right? Like my house to your house, and let's I I correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe. Let's say that you two could go between each other's houses, but I could only go to your house, right? So I would be at the top of the tree. Then your house would be next. Then Joe's house would be next. And then your house would be next in that tree again, right? Yep. Yeah, because the the one arrow would be from your house to his house. And then the next node or child in the tree would be going back to you. But it would be a child of his in the direction he could flow your way. Seems like it would be kind of expensive. So it's yeah, not I don't think in it's terms of a large, like as the size of that tree grew. It could be. Now, the interesting thing is, though, when you do it that way, you're not pointing to an object reference, right? It's literally just a, a named node. Well, I did pointers. So like I did pointers back to my nodes. Oh, you did really? Yeah. So like you would have your first node and you can It'd think of it as like an object. It's got a value and it's got an array of pointers or as a linked list of pointers, uh, you know, it's called an array of pointers that would point to its children and each child had their value and an array of children. But now if they, um, you know, if they point to another node, they don't have to recreate. It's not duplicated. It just, that pointer points back to the parent or wherever it needs to go. Like parent doesn't yeah. even make sense. It's just I a mean, list of connections. 
I mean, originally, like, w- like one of the thoughts that did come to mind too was like a doubly linked list. But then I didn't like the idea of like, well, you know, when you talk about doubly linked lists or just linked lists in general, you're only talking about like one, you know, connection point, right? And so that's why as soon as you said array, I was like, oh yeah, that'd be much better because then you could like have, hey, these are the things I can point to, like a whole list of those things, and it could be you know, uh, however many that particular one's needs, it could grow to whatever it's need is. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, like my, 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 the way I did it is definitely not good. Cause like, if you need to remove a node from this list, like you got to recurse the whole thing looking for like, you know, pointers to it, unless you do that, the double linked list. So that would kind of get you around the problem. So I knew this was not an optimal way of doing it. I was just kind of you know, like interesting. Like when I, like after I programmed it, I went to go look like how other people did it. I was like, Oh yeah, these people did it like better data structures than I did. So I was just kind of curious what you guys, how you kind of thought about it. So if this was a map that we were making. If we were, if we were going to create this as a, for a mapping solution, maybe we would have all the cities with their roads, the fastest roads that would connect to the city. And that would be how we would decide which cities make it into our list or like, okay. So if I wanted to make, <clears throat> let's continue on with this array idea, right? So, I want to say, what cities can Atlanta connect to? Say airports. What, where can you get from the Atlanta airport? Well, the reason why I wanted to go with roads is because I want to pick the roads. If I'm creating a list of cities that Atlanta can can get to, I want to only target what are my fastest roads because those might be my weights, right? Well, I see like with the wind and like the different routes, you could say like getting to New York is maybe slower or, and you add in time zones and stuff in there. So you can get those weights. So well, I'm trying so to avoid like, hey, well, you could technically get to anywhere from Atlanta because you could take like back roads. But by by using the faster roads, then you're like narrowing the list of cities by interstates. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, if you had the, you could, if you did the, the, uh, uh, what was it called? The, the set, um, Will you do the keys? No. Uh, dictionary? Ah. Hash? No. You said no. it. It's the adjacency uh, list. The adjacency. Thank you. My brain. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you could do it that way and you'd have, you'd literally just have key value pairs of Atlanta to Montgomery, Atlanta to Nashville, Atlanta to whatever, right? Yeah. Or if you did the, the array type thing, which it might end up being more like the tree, like what you were talking about. If you had, if you had a two dimensional array, you'd have Atlanta. And then in there, you'd have a list of all the points. Like you'd, Atlanta would be your first index of your array. And then the second, the second portion of your array would be another array of just a list of all the cities that it could attach to. Right. Right. So like, you know, going from Atlanta, you might have, um, what's that Tennessee? Like, uh, Nashville, Nashville. uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Chattanooga, thank Chattanooga. you. Chattanooga. See, I'm so good at geography. <laughs> Let me tell you about my geography. I don't know if you heard. All right. So you might have Chattanooga might be in that list. Birmingham might be in that list. And, you know, Macon, Georgia might be in that list, right? And if you're trying to make that routing back to California, going back with w- what we were talking about earlier, then, um, you know, you've narrowed that list down to only the fastest roads that, you know, cause those you can get to by interstate, right? So now when you look at it from a greedy point of view, you could say that, well, Atlanta to Birmingham is going to be the, you know, my most optimal way to get to California than the other two is because it takes me more west, westwardly than Macon or Chattanooga. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, and I'm like looking like uh, like no one really did it the way I did it. So everyone says basically you do adjacency list, so you do a matrix. So I'm um, like the way I did it works. I'm sure it's not optimum, so it's probably crappy for lookups and pr- crappy for uh, edits. So it's just and not a good <laughs> data structure for this. <laughs> but you did yours by a tree. Well, I didn't. It's not a tree because it's got cycles, but it's like you would like. I basically have a node, and that node has neighbors. And the neighbor, you know, I store the weights in that array too. Right. But you have, you have a list of neighbors. Yeah. So that's an array. No, I wait. That's, that's, that's the way we're talking about it then. Well, Which, it's an array with the dynamic size. Yes. That, oh, but that's okay. what we said. That's, yeah, it's a list. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're so on the same similar page. similar to a tree. It's like a tree that can. No, no, no. Stop using the word tree. It's, it's not a tree. Think you made it a tree. It's a list. A tree would be object, object left, object right, or child left, child right. Yeah, a tree would that's imply not one, that it's not really one list. A tree would imply that there's <laughs> only that there's you know a node has one parent. I gotta see your code. That's basically what it boils down to. I can show you. We're gonna do a pull request. Yeah. Can you have it? Can trees not have cycles? Is that like? Well, then it becomes a graph. Yeah. Well then, that, then what do you call that kind kind of implementation? If you have a tree and then you <laughs> add a, a cycle, that's a graph. A graph. Yeah. If you've got well, what do you pointers, call that implementation? If you've got pointers to the other objects, then you've created a relationship graph. Okay, so it's a graph, but it's not an adjacency list, and it's not a matrix. <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> I don't know. I'd it's just a graph. It. I just made a graph. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is if you're if your tree has cycles in it as as you're saying where like one node can circle back to a parent, right? That's what you're saying? That's what you're calling yep. a cycle? Yep. So in that case, that's not a tree, that's a graph. Yeah. <laughs> but like there's multiple different ways to impl- implement a graph. Like you can do it with a matrix, you can do it with the adjacency list, or you can do this weirdo thing that I did. Uh, Which sounds like it's not that name. weird because this was basically where the three of us landed. I want to see the weirdness. I really all do. Right. I need to see the weirdness. But all anyways. Right. All right. Well, we're so going to move on to Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. That's right. So what you got, Jay-Z? You're up first. Hold on, man. I'm looking at my graph. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, oh, this is so this is a really good one. While I was working on these algorithms today in VS Code, I didn't JavaScript, JavaScript for life. Um, I kept having to go back and run stuff in the terminal. So I would go type, type, type. Then I would go click in the terminal. And then I would you know click up and run my thing. It wouldn't work. So I would go back to the editor pane, make another change, you know, add another console log. Back to the terminal. I was like, man, it stinks that I have to keep taking my hand off the keyboard. Go click the stupid terminal. So I looked for a shortcut and there isn't one. But I found a link on Stack Overflow where somebody was able to set up conditional uh, conditional key bindings in Visual Studio, which sounds tougher than it is. You basically just paste this stuff in a little file. And what it does is it lets that control was it the tilde or backtick that normally opens up the, the terminal it acts a little differently now. So I pasted this into my VS code. And now when I hit control tick, it'll open up the terminal if it's not already open. If it's open and I'm in the editor pane, it'll put me in the terminal. And if I'm in the terminal, it'll put me back in the editor pane. Oh, so nice. 
what it really just means is I don't have to use the mouse to like go back and forth between the pane and the terminal. I like it. Yeah, and it's the shortcut that was already being used for the terminal. So rather than now just like opening and closing the terminal, it just toggles back and forth because I like to have that thing open all the time anyway. Now, okay, I was super curious about this. Do you guys find it um, inconsistent with control tick opening the terminal? Like inconsistent, like you don't want it to do that? Well, like sometimes you want it to and it doesn't do it and you're like, why aren't you opening it? I don't know that I do it enough to notice. Yeah, I would just always have it open, so I don't really know. That's why I can't ever... Yeah, I, I, I have that problem where it's like, even like right now, I have code open right now, and I will do command tick because I'm on a Mac, and I get nothing. It's looking at me like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Wait, isn't it control tick? Well, I thought it would be command on that. Oh, yeah. All right, you're right. No, because that'd be Maybe the equivalent of Windows tick. Yeah, on. you're right. Yeah. So Maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. Dang it, I'm doing it wrong. All right, nothing to see here. Moving along. Hey, how about Azure? <laughs> All right, so check it out. I have, <laughs> I have a couple of tips here. And the first one is I actually got off a mailing list that I didn't know about. So there's this thing that is free Azure credits for students. Which is really cool. So if you are a student and you would like to get a $100 credit to play with in Azure, go get it. And on top of that, you also get 25 free products, virtual machines, artificial intelligence, databases, all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's definitely worth playing with. You, you get things like, uh, uh, I believe like SQL databases up to 250 gigs. Uh, 750 hours of Linux virtual machines. And what are you going to do to qualify as a student? Because I'm a student of life. (laughs) Yeah, I just wonder, like, this is worth going back to school for. I've been studying it for a while now. Oh, man. Oh, my guess is you need studentoflife.edu as an email address. (laughs) Oh, I need an edu. That would be my guess. Now, I don't know that much, but it's worth checking out. If you are a student, if you're in school, you are learning you know, go get this stuff and play with it, right? EDU domain real quick. <laughs> I hear those are harder. Um, so yeah, I'll have a link in the show notes for that. And then also, so I've talked about this in the past. Like, uh, I want to say Instagram, I had mentioned their engineering blog was just amazing, right? When they were talking about how that they, they ended up scaling their Postgres implementations where they sharded things out and they talked about their complications and all that. Well, our buddy Ryan, Ryan Monster on Slack and Twitter, he found this resource that is just crazy. It's a GitHub page that somebody put together that is a list of all the engineering blogs they could find. And there are hundreds of them. Like literally you could burn, you could burn days, weeks reading these things. And there's probably just gold nuggets in here, like the Netflix ones, the Instagrams, they got Flickr. Google research was in there. Google research, Intel, Instagram, Instacart. I mean, it seems impossible to keep up with this though. You're basically like re-indexing the internet. I, I'm, the companies that you want to follow their blogs. Dude, I, I was shocked by how many are in here. Like there's an, uh, no, that's not. Yeah, Nvidia blogs.nvidia.com. Like, like these are companies that are solving like big problems, and they're problems that a lot of people like. If you ever want to see, 
you know, what kind of interesting things are people having to solve? And then he also lists a bunch of individual blogs as well. So, uh, and technologies. And so it's not just companies. So like you, you might follow a Microsoft blog, but what if now how stick with me here? You want to follow the Microsoft edge blog. Doesn't everybody, you, you could do that. <laughs> you could do that. Yep. So, so definitely check out this list. I mean, it, there's probably some just really good information in here. So um, that's it for mine. All right. In mine, I'm going to credit to uh, Chris Bennett, who emailed us this great tip, which is, are you have you ever been in Visual Studio and you're editing around and uh, you, you hit F5 and the wrong project starts up? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh. Right? Yeah. Or so this little tip here uh i'll have a link to it in the show notes but basically what you can do is you can right click on it select set startup projects and there is a radio button there called current selection and what you can do is as you move around files within your solution it'll automatically select the project for that file so that if you do the f5 It'll start the correct one. Now, this is oh, cool. This that's is going to be beneficial if you have multiple pr- start, you know, multiple Launchable. independently runnable projects within your solution. That's really and cool. not just like DLLs or something like that. Um, you know, they're together. But it's a pretty neat little tip. Uh, you can see a, a visualization of this in the uh, the link that'll be in that too. Good stuff. So thanks, Chris, for writing in with that tip. Yeah, definitely. And I have a correction to make, Rada, from earlier in the episode. And first of all, I got a big apology to Will Madison because I know he's going to hit me on this. I misspoke. So an adjacency list is more or less what I programmed. <laughs> I read the description wrong. It's a little different. It's a little bit better. But it's basically the same kind of deal where you keep an array of the nodes. And inside each array, you keep that list of neighbors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just had a, a suboptimal way of kind of like I didn't keep an array of them, which just makes it easier to kind of pop around in there without having to search through the whole list. But it's pretty much what I did, just not as I didn't do as good of a job. Now, the thing that I described where you basically keep track of each pair of things that's connected, that's called an edge list. Ah, uh, okay. Edge list. And so edge list and adjacency list are not the same thing. I got him confused when I was reading up earlier. Wait, I know that. Will Madison, he's going to know and he's going to, he's going to get me on it. Say, say the edge list again. That's the edge list is the one where you keep track of all the edges. So if A connects to B, you're going to have oh. a big array that has A, B. a comma B. Yeah. And then A comma C and A comma D. And, and the comma, a, adjacency a. list, you've got uh, an array with all your notes. So A, B, C, D are in the array and each array each index is going to point to a list of all the neighbors for that node right. so that so was the two-dimensional simple. array that i mentioned initially yeah. yeah you described an edge list not an adjacency list so sorry about that everybody. no i did no, no, both. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah I, I described them both the the two-dimensional array would be an adjacency list matrix and then- no that's the matrix oh, so there's three the- different ways oh and that's why when I was Googling earlier, I was getting confused because I kept seeing adjacency list or edge list. And I was thinking it was the same thing, but it's totally different. So edge list is the list of connections. Adjacency list is a list of all the nodes with where each node has a list of all its neighbors. And there's adjacency matrix, which is the rows and the columns that show the connections. Okay. Uh, the only one I was ever thinking of then was the 
adjacency list. Okay. Okay. And that's the one that's more most similar to a tree. Maybe that's why we got... No. <laughs> Stop. No. <laughs> it is. It can be. Uh, well, I mean, depending on like if you had a plain graph, but as soon as you, but the difference here is that the graph can allow it to you know have circular references or you know like quote multiple yeah. parents. Yeah. So, but yeah. so if you got a tree and you have a bug in your code and you accidentally connect one of those nodes to a parent, is it no longer a tree? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, so okay, let's let's take this back to real world. In the example that I was talking about before. Where, like, when we started the, the implementation, we had mistakenly worked under the premise that, hey, this is a tree, then we weren't even allowing for multiple. Right, right. So, so it wasn't like there was, yeah, it wasn't like there was an option for multiple parents. There was the one parent. Yeah. All right. But you can still, I could goof that up. <laughs> You just yeah. add that parent as a child and have that parent not having children. I can go well, up again. And in the real world, I'll have you know, I've seen some funky, funky trees. Sounds like a song. But, but yeah, but then the problem is, like, how do you know when to stop? Like, you're trying to create this tree. Uh, oh, yeah. That, I mean, that tree's not going to do right. very well. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it, it gets way more complicated that because, like, even your scenario uh, from a space problem you're like way increasing the space because that parent might point to multiple children and each of those children might point back to another parent that you're going to like now you're you're just increasing the size your space for that tree they're all pointers to have doubles of that well maybe they're pointers i don't know how you're implementing it yeah yeah we're we're running off the rails because like i can do anything really poorly We've proven that. Listen to this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So you thought you thought we were going to make it through this episode without getting confused. Yes. I, we mostly did. Yeah. So, yeah. We got you. So check it out. We do have some resources we like. One of them is the Imposter Sandbook that we will have a link there. We've got some Wikipedia links. Uh, there's also a couple of YouTube videos that were pretty helpful in just, you know, being able to see exactly what's going on and what we were talking about. I, hopefully we simplified it a little bit, but, you know, seeing a video with some, some additional nodes and vertices will, will help drive it home even more. Yeah. I found one article that was, um, it described itself as basically the fast, the, like capital F A S T. It's an acronym, uh, the FAST method for solving um, dynamic problems. So if somebody throws a dynamic programming problem for you uh, to you in an interview, then you could kind of follow these steps. And it was a pretty cool uh, way of kind of breaking things down. Uh, hopefully, I don't get any dynamic programming problems in the interview because it was definitely harder than it should be for me to uh, have implement both of these. Cool. All right. Well, with that, thank you for listening and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Uh, as Alan mentioned earlier, if you haven't already, be sure to leave us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. And also, uh, like I mentioned too, uh, please share with a friend, mention it to a friend. That would be helpful. Awesome. And while you're up there at Coding Blocks, go ahead and check out all our show notes, which are extensive examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. We hang out there, and also a lot of uh, really smart people hang out there and uh, help us figure some of this stuff out, uh, usually retroactively, unfortunately. 
But uh, make sure to follow <laughs> us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and you can find all our social links at the top of the page. <laughs> <laughs>